Welcome to Inland Around War, a podcast of the Geneva Academy of International Humanitarian Law and Human Rights on contemporary issues related to wars. What it means to work in the field as a delegate of the International Committee of the Red Cross? What are the challenges for the implementation of international humanitarian law in work contexts? In episode 5, we discuss these issues with Nishat, an alumna of the Geneva Academy and currently a legal advisor for the International Committee of the Red Cross in Geneva. Welcome to episode five of our podcast series In and Around Words. I'm Paola Gaeta and I'm a professor of international law at the Geneva Graduate Institute. And I am Antonio Coco, lecturer in international law at the University of Essex and a former student and teaching assistant at the Geneva Academy. Hello to our listeners. Today, we are very happy to host Nishat, who is, like Antonio, an alumna of the Geneva Academy of International Humanitarian Law and Human Rights. Nishat also worked at the Geneva Academy for a few years as a teaching assistant, but now she's a legal advisor at the International Committee for the Red Cross. And uh, she has worked uh, for a few years in the field, but now she's back at the headquarters here in Geneva. Thank you very much, Nishat, for accepting our invitation. Thank you very much to you, Paula and Antonio. I'm very happy to be here, and it's a great pleasure to be joining you today. Well, Nishat, as I said before, you work for the International Committee for the Red Cross, and this is an independent organization which has an important mandate in the field of armed conflict because it's one of the main organizations that work to ensure humanitarian protection and assistance for victims of armed conflict. And it also promotes respect for international humanitarian law, So these are very important tasks, but how these tasks are implemented in practice, I understand is a broad question, but perhaps you can give us some examples on how the ICRC, the International Committee for the Red Cross, work in practice. Yes, gladly. So those who are familiar with international humanitarian law also know that there are different aspects of international humanitarian law. So there is the law itself, which applies really in times of armed conflict, and there are aspects of the law which apply in what we would call the absence of armed conflict in peacetime. So, for instance, the obligation to implement legislation, etc. So, of course, the International Committee of the Red Cross works on both of those things. So when there is a conflict, we remind parties to the conflict what their obligations are, and we have a dialogue with them on how they can implement these obligations. At the same time, we also work on the preventive aspect of international humanitarian law to ensure that states have strong legislations to investigate and prosecute violations of international humanitarian law should they occur. And then, of course, the International Committee of the Red Cross also has a role in preparing the work to develop international humanitarian law. This was a mandate given to the International Committee of the Red Cross by states. And as we are very familiar with these days, international humanitarian law also has to be guarded against interpretations of the law, which would ultimately erode the protection that it seeks to grant. So there is a whole lot of work that we do in relation to the interpretation of the law as well. So those are just some examples. Chad, 
Can I interrupt you on this question? Of course, so the mandates is big and the mandates are many, no? The first one is, I think, is also of great interest to us because when you say that uh, the International Committee for the Red Cross worked to remind the states or parties to the conflict of their obligations during an armed conflict, of course, it does not do it from the headquarters or just to make a phone calls because it has delegates on the field. What do they do, actually, when there is an armed conflict and there is this such a need or not to remind the parties of their obligations. Okay, so here I can maybe just draw on my own experience when I was working in the field. When I was working as a delegate in the field, I was a delegate for the protection of civilian population. And part of my job was after military operation or military engagement, I would go to the place where this happened. I would speak to the people who were affected by it. I would document their stories. I would look at the houses that were destroyed. I would speak to family members, etc. And then I would take what they told me to the people who were responsible. So if there was a military engagement, then to both the parties, the commanders. Initially, it would be done at the lowest level. So the local commander of the non-state armed group, the state, if there are two states involved, the two states, and present it to them. So to basically say to them, this is what we heard, this is what we saw. And these are some of the concerns we have in relation to your obligations under humanitarian law. And it was important there to work with the commanders to try and understand what the problem was, where there was a problem of individual indiscipline, where there was a problem with insufficient processes or, or procedures, for, for instance, whether it was a question of not having the right weaponry, for example for a particular engagement, to understand what it is that makes a difference to why the law might not be implemented. In a way, it's a sort of dialogue Absolutely. with the relevant authorities uh, as uh, delegates of the International Committee for the Red Cross. Can I ask where were you sent as a delegate? I started my field missions in Afghanistan. So that was my first mission. Then I was briefly based for a few months in the south of the Philippines. And then I was in South Sudan. And finally, I was a legal advisor in Ukraine. So there, as a legal advisor, my job was slightly different. But I was definitely relying on the same sort of work that my colleagues did in the field. And Nisha, this dialogue with the commanders from armed groups or states, what do you find that were the most challenging aspects? Was it easy to get in touch with the relevant people and to talk to them and to engage in a meaningful conversation? So it was interesting because it was the difficulties and the difficulties were unexpected. So the difficulties that I expected were not the ones that I was faced with <laughs> and the ones that I didn't expect were the ones I was faced with. So in fact, it was quite surprising how much people wanted to engage on their operations. Of course, it, it varied and it, it depended on the context and it depended largely on our relationship with the parties to the conflict. So where we had done the groundwork to speak to the local commanders or to speak to the authorities in the capital to have this consistent dialogue, of course, it was easier to build on that trust. So where we were starting from scratch, and there were a few times when I had to make the first contact with an armed group, for instance. There, of course, it was a bit harder because you don't meet someone for the first time and immediately criticize what they've been doing. So you meet them, you tell them about yourself, you ask them about them, you find that common ground, and slowly you get to the point where you can ask them the harder questions. But I, very generally speaking, I was surprised by the openness. And I think there, 
it's certainly true that working for an organization like the International Committee of the Red Cross helps because many people remembered us from Red Cross message that they had received in a previous conflict. They had perhaps been at an event organized by one of our colleagues on international humanitarian law. So these sorts of things also helped a lot in having this first contact. Though I have to say the point was what I remember this one moment where I really felt caught out and it was a moment I was doing what we call in the International Committee of the Red Cross uh, dissemination sessions. So these are where you engage with a group or a state and you tell them what international humanitarian law is. So it's like a little lecture almost, but much more interactive. And when I was speaking about international humanitarian law, I got to the point where I talked about criminal repression and I talked about how certain violations of international humanitarian law might lead to prosecutions and could be war crimes, for example, rape. And there was a little bit of chatter at the back of the, it was in a room, but uh, it was out in the open. So there was a little bit of chatter. So I stopped and I asked what, uh, <laughs> what this was about. And I was uh, told that they found it very surprising that rape could be a war crime. And uh, I should be serious about this. And I have to be honest, it's the only time that it happened is generally everyone gets the speaking points, whether or not there is sexual violence committed by an actor, everyone knows to say not that it's committed. (laughs) So it was a very interesting discussion because I appreciated the fact that people were honest enough to say that they were surprised that this was a war crime. So we could then talk about the fact that indeed it is a war crime. And I felt that this is where that moment had changed something for someone in that session. And so that was probably the most unexpected thing that happened. So these dialogues that you have with with the parties to the conflict, even on very delicate themes, as you were just saying, I understand that they are kept confidential. So the International Committee of the Red Cross operates by a rule of confidentiality. Can you tell us perhaps a little bit more about how that works and why is that? Yes, of course. So it's what we call our working modality. So it's important that it's not an absolute thing. The International Committee of the Red Cross will never speak about something publicly or openly, but rather that it's our preferred working modality. It's our starting point. So again, I go back here to what I just said about building trust. And when you are talking about very delicate issues with someone and you want to have a discussion about why certain things are happening, they have to first acknowledge that certain things are happening and they have to feel comfortable enough to speak to you about their internal processes so that together you can figure out what might be the place where you put that fix that it doesn't happen. So you need two things. One, you need a willingness to first respect the law because someone who doesn't care about the law is never going to speak to you honestly about this anyway and you don't get anywhere. And that's where I was saying earlier, it's surprising that actually most people do want to respect the law. And then you need the trust to have this discussion openly And the trust to then take on your recommendations as well, right? So to to trust you to give something useful to them. And so this working modality of confidentiality is about that. It's to say that this is a safe space. I'm going to tell you what I saw. I'm not right now going to tell anyone else about what I saw and what I heard. I invite you also to give me your thoughts on this. And I won't tell anyone else about what you're telling me. And we hope that it's through this that we can already fix the problem by using that starting point that we both want to fix the problem. Then, of course, there are moments when that doesn't work. 
either because that starting point isn't there or because the trust just doesn't get built or there are other competing factors that we can't take into account but are happening behind the scenes. And that means that we just don't get to a point of compliance with IHL. And there, the ICRC has an internal process. So the International Committee of the Red Cross has many policies that it applies to itself. And one of those policies is indeed on when we break with confidentiality. Has it happened in your experience that the International Committee for the Red Cross has decided to give up in terms of the confidentiality? Because there have been cases before the International Criminal Tribunal for the former Yugoslavia where delegates from the International Committee for the Red Cross witnessed commissions of certain violations of international humanitarian laws and war crimes and the confidentiality was raised and it was respected. The tribunal said that they cannot force the International Committee for the Red Cross to breach such a confidentiality rule, which is an important modality, as you say, for gaining confidence and therefore to perform the work of humanitarian diplomacy, which is an important work that the committee performs. But has been ever occurred? Yes, it has. So there have been occasions where the International Committee of Red Cross has said things publicly. I won't go into exactly when. However, it might not be so obvious to someone who is not part of the state or the non-state arm group about whom that break of confidentiality is about. And that's because the idea of the confidentiality is that we raise it with those responsible. We try to do everything we can. We raise it perhaps with certain other people. We try to do everything we can. Then if we really feel that we can't do anything else and we balance always the interest of the victims. And if we feel that it's, in this case, in the interests of those affected, for us to break with confidentiality, we do it. But all of those things happen not in public. And it's not that when we break confidentiality, we then say we are breaking with confidentiality. But every now and then, if you really look for it, you see that the International Committee of the Red Cross is saying that something, a specific incident or a specific action is a violation. That would be something that we wouldn't normally do. So calling on parties to the conflict to respect IHL generally, this is not a break from confidentiality. This is something that the ICRC does. It doesn't mean that the parties to the conflict are not implementing IHL. IHL, just for our listeners, is the abbreviation for international humanitarian law. Well, Nisha, working as a delegate for the International Committee of the Red Cross in the field where there are armed conflicts, but in general, working as a humanitarian in armed conflict situations is very dangerous. How the issue of security is that with for the ICR personnel? What has been your experience in terms of security? Well, uh, with security, just like with what we're just discussing, respect for international humanitarian law, the ICRC relies on a model of trust. So what we aim to do is build the trust so that when we go to places, we're transparent about who we are, why we're there, what we want to do. We try to ensure that people understand that we're there really in the capacity of a neutral humanitarian organization, that we're not taking sides, also that we're not there to gather information. And here again, our working modality of confidentiality helps us to explain that, to say that the things that we see here, the things we talk about, we're not going to be discussing with the other side. And that's what we rely on. I think one thing that I have realized in my experience, and it's really something that I go back to over and over again, is that I am facing the same risks as the people around me. And in fact, not even the same risks. I'm facing much less than what the people around me are facing. And I think there's a way in which that it would 
be unrealistic to expect that there would be zero risk if we're working in armed conflict. What we can do is to make sure that people understand who we are and why we're there. And so, so that's what we do. We don't use armored cars, for example. We don't use bodyguards because the idea is that we build this relationship of, of trust with people. It's like to create a sort of humanitarian space where everyone, you know? Exactly. That's exactly right. Yeah. And I think here it helps to engage with the people who control the territory, whoever that happens to be, and to also tell them all the things that we do. And I have found in my experience that places where I feel the safest or where I feel the most comfortable, even if there is fighting happening around me, are places where people have benefited or they see the value of the International Committee of the Red Cross, where they understand that we're there to reunite families, they understand that we're there to support the civilian population, etc. Of course, it's also true that this space is shrinking and is shrinking as more and more We're being pushed into a corner where there being labels attached to certain kinds of fighting, where working with or working in an area controlled or an area run by a particular group or even sometimes a state or accessing an area from a particular place, for instance, is being characterized as non-neutral action. Sorry, because as you say, the principle of neutrality is, uh, is also one of the core principles of the International Committee for the Red Cross, because it means that you don't take side, you know, when you operate uh, in a context of an armed conflict. Exactly. So you speak equally to both parties to the conflict. Uh, you try to bring them to comply equally to the law of armed conflict. Why sometimes, as you seems to suggest, you didn't want to say it, but uh, in politics, certain conflicts or certain groups are labeled as terrorist groups. And therefore, exactly it seems yes. to be wrong, no? Speak to both sides equally because one is the bad guy and the other one is the good guy. And this has created some problems in the humanitarian space, no? Absolutely. And this, of course, we can also talk about openly the counterterrorism legislation that more and more states are adopting. And of course, we understand where it comes from. It comes from their obligations under the UN Security Council resolution. So they're adopting counterterrorism legislation. But of course... The resolution also says that it cannot interfere with international humanitarian law. But always, and we always see this, this story of making the other side illegitimate is as old as war itself, as conflict itself. And one of the more recent ways of doing this is to characterize a group as terrorist and therefore any contact with this group then somehow becomes support to terrorism. And this is a legal problem, of course, a very important legal problem, but it's also a perception. And talking about groups this way and talking about parties to the conflict this way means that an organization, a humanitarian organization like the International Committee of the Red Cross, having any contact with this kind of group and maybe even with certain states is seen to be taking sides. And that does have an impact on security. Yeah, and, and we've started talking about uh, violations that unfortunately occur, even if we have this body of rules that is meant to make wars more humane. And I was wondering, Nishat, if we can say that international humanitarian law is broadly respected or not, despite the fact that we do have some violations. For public international law in general, there is that old saying that most international actors respect most of international law most of the time. Is the same true for international humanitarian law? This is a really interesting question because, of course, it gets asked a lot. We ask ourselves this question a lot as well, because maybe it's a case like with everything that the violations are of a law or of a rule or of a norm 
are louder and more salient than the instances of compliance. And it's interesting, Antonio, that you go to this saying, because the saying that I often go to is, if international law is at the vanishing point of law, then IHL, international humanitarian law, is at the vanishing point of international law. This is not a saying. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. And this is the one that I always go to. Because it's true that international humanitarian law kicks in when the other rules are not working to regulate the relationship between actors. And so this is our last saving law. And it's already in a situation that's very dire that international humanitarian law is expected to then regulate the situation. And the problem is that, of course, the violations of international humanitarian law, the consequences of those, they're certainly grave, the consequences of violations of international humanitarian law, because what international humanitarian law is protecting are just such basic notions of humanity. So it's also understandable that those violations are more salient and they're more visible because the consequences are indeed quite grave. Now, it's a hard game to talk about when it's respected, when it's not, because of course, every time a Red Cross message is exchanged, it's an instance of compliance with the law. Every time the ICRC steps anywhere, is allowed to have an office, is allowed to cross a front line, is allowed to enter a territory, that's compliance with international humanitarian law. And any time someone is not killed when they take a prisoner, there, that's a compliance with international humanitarian law. But of course, it's hard to know what to do with that if, say, supposing they're not killed, but then they're not given enough food, right? So do they, does the violation cancel out the instance of compliance? So I think what I would say is that it's certainly not the case that international humanitarian law is not ever complied with. That's definitely not the case. It is implemented, it's taken seriously, it's complied with. However, the instances of violation of international humanitarian law or the non-respect, even if we don't call it a violation of international humanitarian law, for very good reasons, even if that's a minority, it's unacceptable because of the consequences. Nisha, there is something, however, which is recurrently a question, in particular when it comes to armed conflict between states, namely war, what we see now between Ukraine and Russia, Russia against Ukraine. This is prohibited, not to resort to wars, it's prohibited in international law and to resort to international use of armed force is prohibited since the adoption of the UN Charter. In international humanitarian law, after all, when it comes to this international armed conflict, as you say, it tries to make the law speak again when the law has been broken, which is a challenge. But it's also premised upon a paradox that you tend to regulate something that is, after all, illegal since the start. No, it's like to regulate, I don't know, the way people torture other people simply because torture occurs. You want to have them respecting the law while doing something which is prohibited. This is a paradox. No? How do you reconcile yourself in a way <laughs> at a personal level with this paradox? Yes, this is one of the things that used to keep me up at night, <laughs> definitely. Every now and then it still keeps me up at night, I have to be honest. I think the aspect that keeps me up at night is probably the thing that has changed a little bit. I think what used to keep me up at night in the past was that I'd always identified as a pacifist, which would mean that my life's work should have been to prevent armed conflict and to not accept any situation of armed conflict at all. So at a very personal level, wondered how I got from that to now working in a field 
where you take armed conflict as a given. And something that someone told me really helped me when I was just standing at the International Committee of the Red Cross, someone made comparison to a hospital and said that, of course, in a hospital, you need different parts of the hospital. You need the emergency unit because people are going to come in all the time, but you also need a research part of the hospital to make sure that people don't get cancer or diseases are prevented or can be cured. And the fact that you have one doesn't negate the need for the other. So it's not because we give a lot of funding to preventing disease that we stop dealing with disease. It actually does happen. So I really liked that. And it, I think that to me, that, that really helped me sleep better at night, <laughs> literally. But I think the reason I've come back to this a bit more now in the recent years is that I come back to this idea that international humanitarian law, even if perfectly respected, is not going to mean no suffering and it's not going to mean peace. So my professional perfect world would be one where international humanitarian law is perfectly respected. But this would not necessarily be my perfect ideal world that I would want to live in. A world where there is no need for international humanitarian law. Exactly. Exactly. That's exactly right. Want to have a world without war. Exactly. I want a world in which I would be unemployed. (laughs) (laughs) Or you can have a career as a podcaster, perhaps. (laughs) Um, maybe not quite yet. <laughs> well, thank you, Nishat. We have a tradition in our podcast, before we conclude, that is always to ask our guest, a former student of the Geneva Academy, whether they can share with us an anecdote from their time as a student or as a teaching assistant. Anything that makes you laugh, smile, cry, whatever comes to mind right now, anything that you would like to share with us? This is a really hard one. <laughs> Yes. Well, I have some <laughs> things that I remember you as a student. I can say, I say, as I reminded myself of you singing a song oh. <laughs> uh, at the end of the academic year, using all the acronyms that you had learned. Uh, <laughs> yes, I'm not sure that I would want to sing the song in a podcast. <laughs> was it a song? No, no, was it a song? Yeah, it was GC9, GC1. Let's all have some GC5. That's all. Yeah, exactly. It was on the Geneva Conventions. GC1, GC2, GC3, AP1, AP2. And it was a nice song. I hope that you had recorded it somewhere. Um, I think maybe we can get the class together once to, to do a little recording. Because I was as a teaching assistant, indeed. We were on the trip to Soferino when we were singing it on the bus. I do remember that. Yeah. I think, I mean, I don't know whether I'm allowed to say that. I can tell you one of the, the most social moments that I remember. It was Human Rights Day in the year that I did uh, when I was studying. And we had been very stressed the whole semester, as I'm sure anyone (laughs) who studies at the academy will know. It's a very intense first semester. And it was Human Rights Day and the academy was hosting an event. It was an incredible event. And I remember, actually, I remember all these events being incredible as a student. My brain felt like it was in this rainforest of ideas. It was incredible. And the best part was that Professor Clapham had told the caterers that they could leave when we had finished all the wine. (laughs) And of course, we were poor students in Geneva. And this was like all our Christmases coming at once. So we stuck around and we drank all the wine. We ate all the food. And we could also tell that perhaps the faculty was going off for their own celebration we're not sure actually we're sure let's just say we had a very big night we ended up karaoke and we thought people were speaking to us in english when they were speaking to us in swiss german it was fantastic and the next morning we had an international criminal law lecture 
Professor Ganta, you were giving that lecture. And we arrived in a very bad state. But then as soon as the lecture started, we realized that probably the academy faculty had also had a very good human rights day. <laughs> I'm always drunk. <laughs> no, no, no. No one said that you were drunk. Simply that a good time was had by all the night before. Let's, let's just say it was a very, <laughs> very good night. So that I remember very fondly. <laughs> Thank you very much, Nisha. This is a very nice memory of your time when you were a student and teaching assistant at the Geneva Academy. And uh, thank you uh, for sharing with us uh, your experience as a delegate at the International Committee of the Red Cross. And uh, we have very much enjoyed uh, doing this podcast because with you today, Nisha, we end the series of this podcast. We hope that we will do another one. We don't know, a second season, why not? So thank you for being with us. No, it's a, a real pleasure. I really enjoyed that. Thank you very much for having me on. Thank you, Nishat. And as always, let me remind all our listeners that our podcasts are available on all the platforms where you usually listen to podcasts like Apple Podcasts, Spotify, etc. And you can subscribe. If we ever do a second season, you will automatically download it this way and you will not miss any episode. Bye-bye, everyone. And until the next time. You've been listening to In and Around Wars, a podcast of the Geneva Academy of International Humanitarian Law and Human Rights. If you've enjoyed this episode, don't forget to subscribe and stay tuned for more inspiring conversations with Geneva Academy alumni. You can also check the Geneva Academy's website at www.geneva-academy.ch to find more resources and upcoming events on contemporary issues of international humanitarian law and policy.